the little vignette I like to illustrate this is uh, if you look at Paris in 1939 today, today it's between three and four times larger in surface area. Not So not the, the jurisdiction Ville de Paris, but the metropolitan area. London is around about the same size, it's maybe 10 or 15% larger, some little extensions in the um, parts of the south, uh, southwest and southeast. But um, basically the boundaries of London are where the builders laid down their tools when we went to war in <laughs> 39. Now, this I mean, such a profound difference. Um, put the country on such a different trajectory if we had not, and that is all an artifact of regulation. Welcome to the AA podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh and I'm the Director of Public Policy and Communications here at the IEA. Each week this podcast asks a tantalising policy question for top political and economic thinker. Today's question, can Labour fix the housing crisis? Housing is back at the top of the political agenda after Labour leader Keir Starmer declared that he's with the builders, not the blockers, and signalled an intent to bring back binding housing targets and perhaps even build on parts of the Greenbelt. Meanwhile, pressure is going on the Conservative backbenchers to support more house building. To ask whether there is potential hope now for, for housing reform, I'm very excited to be joined by Dr. Samuel Hughes, who is the head of housing at the Centre for Policy Studies as well as a research fellow at the University of Oxford. Uh, Samuel is a leading voice in urbanism and design, and he's also worked at Roger Scruton-led Building Better, Building Beautiful Commission. Welcome to the podcast, Samuel. Lovely to be here. So before we get into some of the, the detail of this week's announcement, I, I wanted to um, uh, get your, your thoughts and, and a bit of background on your new Works in Progress documentary series um, about gentle density. So. You, uh, you luckily got to visit Brooklyn recently um, to, to make a video and, and learn about their um, urban history. What, 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 what can you tell us? What, what did you get from that? Yes, well, it's very embarrassing. We were just doing it as a screen test to see if this was totally improbable or not. But, um, but yes, my colleagues at Works in Progress were, were pleased with the footage and thought they'd release it. And it did get a lot of response. I mean, I, I, it, it struck me, it told me something about how strongly people do respond to video content that even <laughs> I, I fear somewhat amateurish, uh, my somewhat amateurish efforts were uh, treated with a lot of interest. It's, um, I mean, we wanted to look, so in sort of British urbanism discourse at the moment, this phrase gentle density um, attracts a lot of attention. I think it comes from Nicholas Boyce's myth at Grace, at Grace Reads. And the idea is you can get to really quite high, even very high levels of density in formats that people are pretty widely popular, um, that don't attract the same kind of resistance as high-rise does, um, and that are associated with lots of other good health, well-being, sustainability outcomes. So, so at the high end of gentle density, think Paris, Barcelona, um, Central Rome, this kind of... Here, then, here in Westminster. I mean, I, I was struck just walking down the street, the IEA zone, you, you look down the street and everything is about four, five, six stories. It's um, kind of interesting architectural, historical design. Everything looks a bit different, but it all kind of works together. Yeah. I think it's almost a similar story in terms of what you're pointing to in Brooklyn. And you look at the, uh, you know, look at Westminster on the Google 3D view and you'll see that the, they've gradually filled in the backs of the plots. You, you hear at the... Oh. You here at the IEA have uh, built over what was would originally have been a backyard for well, I don't know, probably vegetables or something in the middle Indeed, ages. yeah, I think it was, yeah. Um, and some of the 
buildings that were more comprehensively redeveloped in the 20th century have gone up to almost sort of, you know, not quite midtown Manhattan densities, but they're eight, nine stories, in some cases, filling up almost the whole of the plot. And this is an extremely popular neighbourhood that tourists enjoy looking through. So the property prices are quite high. Uh, well, yeah, it's quite I mean, desirable. Lovely, gentle density neighbourhoods often are extremely expensive, and to this we always, you know, I usually get people you know, will criticise you for valorising these neighbourhoods. The, the proper response is always, well, if we, we just had to build a great deal more of them, <laughs> and then gradually the prices will be pushed down. Um, but yeah, we wanted basically in the series to explore a bunch of different gentle density neighbourhoods around the world, looking at the range of different... They, they, you can go from the Edwardian suburb, which is not so much denser than lots of modern, you know, the post-war suburban developments, but which still has various features that you know, works very well, up to, you know, central Paris at the other end, and they can vary in all sorts of other ways, but they're united by these certain characteristics of strong build line, traditional plot structure, walkability, mixed use, um, these rich facade patterns and all the rest, um, and to, you know, try and and um... I suppose you're kind of really showing an alternative vision of, of, right. of yeah, kind exactly. of urbanism and, and housing and, and kind of pointing out, well, we have this in London, but you know, here are some other places in the world where you have it. I was interested in a very uh, a story I hadn't heard before, but uh, it, it doesn't necessarily tell us a lot about uh, the future of housing, but this story about um, why there's so much, I suppose, uh, metal in front of these houses in Brooklyn. There isn't any of that in London. Uh, which goes back till World War Two. Well, so the, there's two things going on here. One is the strange New York, the New York practice, or lots of American cities, practice of putting fire escapes on the yes, front of buildings. Of course, yeah. This has to do with sort of curious 19th century building regulations. Well, I th- I th- yeah, I suspect it's to do with um, it was a, some great fires in industrial New York. Right. And then they, they, a lot of people died and felt like they needed exits from these buildings. And they really, you know, they're intrinsically very ugly, but they've been there for so long that we've been slightly inured to it. And now they, people even feel they're part of, like, New York special characters. The other thing, uh, there's a specific ironwork thing in, in London, which is that we started to... Um, so during the Second World War, the government asked people to give in all ironwork that they could get their hands on unless it had some strict safety function like fencing off the areas of um, Georgian buildings. Um, so people rushed out and plundered all the ironwork from uh, their neighbourhoods and gave it to the government. Uh, apparently it was largely useless. Um, so it was meant to be used in, in armoury? And... That's right, yeah. Um, and it's, it's uh, as far as, I mean, I don't records are a bit unclear, but it seems that actually like old iron railings can't really be turned into weapons, as is not so very surprising. But by this point, it had become such a morale booster for people to feel they were actually contributing to the war in this very tangible way, and it would have been so distressing for them to learn that they just ruined their neighbourhoods for nothing, that the government didn't tell them this, and they kept on doing it's it. pretty much, London, London could be more beautiful. Um, yeah, well, yes. Went for the one, slight mistake. One of many stories that uh, have that character. I'm always interested, the, 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 um, there was a, I think there was a paper came out a few years ago suggesting that uh, the Blitz had increased London's GDP by a huge amount, and that's because a lot of what was... Um, beautiful historical housing, of course, from an aesthetic perspective, was removed, but then it, that led to a lot of densification in London. So without, uh, without the Blitz, London would be smaller and, and poorer. So maybe that's the, the positive um, story, I suppose, not when it comes to the aesthetic, aesthetic beauty of London, but the economic story of Yes, London. well, beauty can cut in different ways economically. Um, on the whole, if you can 
you know, one of the one of the things we have stressed in recent work is the surface of buildings does matter. It has a huge effect on how people respond to them, and you know, certainly when you're getting on something like intensification of buildings, the what that intensification intensification of existing neighbourhoods, what that looks like, has a huge effect on how people respond to it. Um, so famous, you know, we brought out that little paper with Create Streets um, a couple of years ago on uh, mansard extensions, little yeah. roof extensions. These We're at lofts, uh, lofts. sometimes called, yeah. So, you know, adding extra stories to buildings typically very contentious. People don't, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of maximally contentious development where it's already there in a neighbourhood that people know. It's kind of housing, old, old buildings that people like and have lots of heritage value. If you control for the kind of, you know, you put in strict regulations governing the kind of extension you can have so that you're only adding these very traditional stereotyped mansard roofs just as they did very predictably in the 18th and 19th centuries, then by far the greater part of this hostility just goes away. People, why don't we let that? Why is totally obvious? Why don't we let And there's, of course, some interesting case studies of this. It was in Maida Vale where everyone on a street agreed um, to put up the mansard all at the same time. Brazil, yeah. Um, and then the other case is, I mean, it's not necessarily mansards, although maybe some was mansards, is in, is in Tottenham. Um, yes, this is a fascinating story. So the um, Haredi Jewish community, very large families, they have to live within walking distance of the synagogue for religious reasons. And the neighbourhood is mostly kind of two, three-bedroom, late Victorian workers' cottages. So terrible overcrowding. And they went on this big campaign to persuade the local authority to let them add one and a half storeys subject to a strict design code so that the street will end up looking just as though it was built as a three and a half storey. And, and before that, there was a lot of kind of illegal development, very low quality, ruining the aesthetic of which the street. Which is indeed ugly, and which they, you know, didn't want their neighbourhood to be ruined either. So they, you know, there was... a broad consensus on the direction of travel eventually between the local authority and the local community. And finally, they agreed on this um, this um, SPD, this sort of special local policy. And um, and now there are loads of these extensions cropping up and they've done, they've looked at, you know, the approval ratings for this policy among local people, both in the Haredi community and other local people. It's of course extremely highly. Like large majorities of people who responded to the consultation respond positively, which is a extremely rare for any kind of development like this. So it's, in those cases, you know, beautiful buildings, building more beautifully presents an opportunity for um, and so, development and creating bad. The, the flip side of that is, you know, if you have a beautiful building, people will be more reluctant to tear it down. <laughs> and, and that, uh, so it, it probably is true that um, historic neighbourhoods, you know, they, there are, I think, kinds of subtle intensification that people can support, but when we're never going to have a consensus for demolishing Georgian London and replacing it with something built at Hong Kong densities. I mean, hardly any English people would want this to happen. And that's partly because it's so lovely. And that, so there we have a genuine tension between two values. And that is unfortunately just a, a well, part of the nature of things. I think, yeah, and Delhi, although I think there's probably a lot you can do to, to densify London, especially the outer London, London without ruining any of the aesthetic. In fact, arguably increasing the, the beauty of it. Um, I assume there's, there's more episodes coming of Gentle Density. Um, for those who, who do want to watch it, uh, you can visit Works in Progress. Can you tell us where you're going next? We've done, we've, we've actually done filming for two of them already. We've done one in Le Plusieur Robinson, which is a, it's a, actually it's quite pertinent. It's a suburb of Paris, which was built at medium-density post-war social housing in the 1950s and 60s, getting very run down by the 1980s. They've gradually redeveloped it, I think about 250% higher density um, in this, this well, with rather lovely traditional gentle density. 
um, mixed tenure and overwhelmingly popular, um, highly successful, um, yeah, a huge increase in the number of inhabitants, but delivered in a way that also seems to improve the character of the neighbourhood. So it's kind of a, a model for this kind of intensification that we're talking about. And then I've just come back from um, the Caucasus where we did some filming in, in Azerbaijan, um, looking at the contrast between the kind of gentle density, you know, the kind of density they were building at in the Persian at Old Town and the kind they were building at in the... It was the first... Baku was the first sort of oil boom city at the end of the 19th century, in the early 20th century, flooded with huge quantities of money. Half of the world's internationally traded oil came from Baku for wow. uh, in the first decade of the 20th century. Totally unknown. Um, I'm completely unaware, yeah. So well. flooded with cash and they built... Paris on the Caspian there, wow. um, and nobody knows about it, and it presents a, a, right next to this old um, 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 capital of the Emirate of Shirvan. So the lovely contrast between these two forms of urbanism, both good, both falling under the broad heading of gentle density, but showing how this kind of thing can be adapted to different purposes in different contexts. Yeah, I mean, there's interesting kind of historical cases in, um, in my own home state in Victoria where there was gold rush. You have these regional towns with a lot of very beautiful... Victorian buildings, and even in, in Melbourne, which I suppose from an urbanist perspective, a lot of it was um, torn down in the, the latter, latter parts of the 20th century, but you had this huge amount of wealth at this very moment, and then you, you get the kind of building aesthetic at the time. Why don't we move on to the, I suppose, uh, the, the topic of the week, the, the policy question that's um, you know really engrossed at least all, all the my friends, I'm sure your friends who are obsessed with housing, which is um, this new, new rhetoric and, and potentially very new policy from the Labour Party on housing. It, it seems like Keir Starmer has come out full-throated um, in respect to saying there is a, a failure to build enough houses, there's a failure um, when it comes to supply, so he's very much identified um, the need for planning reform um, in response to the Tories um, lacking in, in that respect. What do you make of, of, I suppose it's almost a political strategy, but you know, does it give you kind of great hope and excitement that you know, we're now again back to housing reform uh, as a policy issue that it's not um, all kind of dead in the water as, as it was up until this point. And potentially maybe young people will be able to afford to buy their own homes and um, uh, potentially prices could come down and, and you could achieve quite a lot. I mean, it's interesting. It's, it's, I, I, I'm mainly going to have to give this like, boring, frustrating answer, which is kind of too early to say, and the devil's in the details and all the other yes, usual course, cliches. Yeah. That, um, I... I but I, you know, it's a bit unexpected that they would come out quite so strongly for it, especially at a time like at one stage people were saying, well, why does Labour care? You know, it's, they're not going to win those um, shire seats anyway, so they can threaten to build as much as they like there. But now when Labour, or at least the Liberals, could win lots of uh, um, seats in, in Greenbelt areas, it's an interesting political risk for them to run. Um, and I, yeah, I must... I wasn't quite expecting them to... It, it, I mean, I couldn't help but feel, and, and someone who's been following the housing debate quite closely, I'm sure you felt this as well, that it was quite courageous, in the, in the true yes-minister sense of the word. <laughs> right. um, which then makes me think about what, what, is the, what is the kind of political economy here for Labour, which is to say they have a very successful large number of voters in younger suburban areas um, who tend to be more supportive of housing. I know polling kind of suggests a lot of NIMBYism out there, but there's also some level of NIMBYism. There is some level of, in, in the community, yes, in my backyard, and particularly amongst um, renters. Um, and there's obviously some kind of direct 
you know, London-centric policy making here where, because it's talked a lot about young people in housing as this issue in London, therefore it kind of feeds through to Labour um, policy people and, and then feeds through. Um, so I suppose there's that, that you know, maybe maybe they don't have as many of those Tory-shy voters and therefore they don't have to worry about them quite as much. Yeah, but then they don't have to worry about the young metropolitan voters because they've got them anyway, or at least they've got the Steves. <laughs> it's, I, I, I lean towards the more... Um, um, in some respects, towards the more tragic analysis of the city. So some of my pro-building colleagues believe actually building is popular um, if you just put in place certain of the right measures or whatever. And, you, you know, there are some polls you can look at which may, where that appears to be the case. I think it probably is a short-term electoral liability to either to Labour or the Conservatives, though, in somewhat different ways. Um, and I... It's not... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'd be delighted to be proved wrong. I'd be surprised if this plays really well for Labour electorally. Um, so the slightly alternative way to say it is um, Labour wants a growth strategy. So their, their relentless focus is saying that there has been no economic growth, the Tories have failed us, and then once you, once you get into a growth strategy, you know, you, you can't really have a growth strategy without planning reform. You can't, you can't have a growth strategy without saying you can build labs you, I mean, in that Cambridge is, and Oxford. That you is, can of build course, true. I mean, it's an economic cost of the failures of planning reform is is astronomical, like far bigger than people imagine it to be. But because it's invisible, it's developed growth that didn't happen. Um, people don't have any feeling for how mm. huge the opportunity, opportunity costs are, are invisible. Of, of course, the, the planning system has such a massive kind of economic impact in so many different ways. If you look at the question of, of energy, uh, whatever kind of energy you like, be it fracking or solar or wind, onshore, you need a planning system that enables that to be built. When it comes to issues of people being able to live where they might be most productive, um, it has massive issue. And then, of course, directly in terms of people's bottom line, there's cost of living issue. Yeah, so there's, I mean, you know, we can obviously go on for hours about this stuff, but the one, the little, the little vignette I like to illustrate this is, uh, if you look at Paris in 1939 today, today it's between three and four times larger in surface area. Not so, not the the jurisdiction Ville de Paris, but the metropolitan area. Of the, London is around about the same size. It's maybe ten or fifteen percent larger. Of some little extensions in the um, parts of the south, uh, southwest and southeast. But um, basically, the boundaries of London are where the builders laid down their tools when we went to war in thirty-nine. <laughs> now, this I mean, such a profound difference. Um, put the country on such a different trajectory if we had not, and that is all an artifact of regulation, that's not to do with well, was London it, was, not having any Was it the fact that this wasn't really noticed that much though, because there was depopulation from London maybe maybe it was forced, but the population of London declined after the war for, maybe, maybe the mention of the car is, is the key part of the story here, which is people genuinely did move outside of London, um, and therefore we didn't notice the impact of the Town and Country Planning Act really biting until um, cities become repopulated and, and urban living becomes more popular yeah, later on. It's puzzling. I haven't worked through the full story of how we ended up on such a different trajectory. Um, so one theory I have is that we have, so British people firstly identify quite strongly with the country. So there's a strong pattern that countries preserve whatever their national identity is vested in. Um, France does have some landscapes in which its national identity is vested, like Provence or the um, I, would, I would say France has beautiful landscapes. It's oh, just yeah. not, well, it's not the, talked about in the same way. The, as the agricultural land of the Ile-de-France is not really seen as like the spirit of France. That's just, just, just farm over loads of farmland. It's just part of the plains of northern France. Whereas I think outside London, 
the North Downs and the Chilterns. These are like some of the landscapes with which English people identify most strongly. And so those, protection of those really was like in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, that was kind of an article of faith among them. So, and maybe that was one of the things that put us on a different trajectory there. But um, urban decline, uh, yes, that might be, I, again, I'd have to work it through. The city centres of, I mean, city centres declined in lots of European countries as well. And that's partly just because transport options got better and so people... Yeah, the suburbs became a thing, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then there were all specific things about pollution, the crime waves of the post-war period and this kind of... Um, but was it more serious in Britain in the 50s and 60s? And did that put us on... Maybe that was a factor. Um, the new towns were, of course, a part of this programme of delivering new housing. Garden through. cities, yeah. Yeah, they'd be, people could be decanted to Harlow and uh, Basildon rather than um, finding ways to accommodate them within London or on the outskirts of London. And I don't think that policy was pursued in the same way on the continent. So that may have provided another outlet for um, housing need in the during the decades in which the development corporation system was operating. Um, and then when that system broke down, we'd lost the habit of adding homes to London. So I, I don't, but that's, I'm giving you, you know, at best, I'm giving you informed speculation. Yeah, I mean, I think the simple story of this, of course, is, you know, you bring in the Town and Country Planning Act, you make it very difficult to build anything new. For a period of time, um, there is still at least some quite substantial building, but eventually that comes to bite and you end up yeah. You went up with great urbanisation in, in the last 20, we, 30 years without having the housing to enable it. followed Paris's trajectory, London would be by far the largest city in Europe and the unquestioned economic and cultural capital of the continent. I mean, that is the, the alternative history that we've foregone. Well, there, there, is, there it is, isn't it? You know, believe in Britain, <laughs> believe yeah. in uh, Lon London's global supremacy... Uh, and the UK is a, a global country. It then could you, have been. You have, it, it could yet be. It could yet be. Let's let's be optimistic and positive here. Um, why don't we go through a little bit more into Labour's policies? Um, and I'm interested to get your thoughts. And and in a sense, this is not these aren't new policies just yet. They're things that have been talked about or done in the past. I suppose the, the big one is this tension about housing targets. Um, the, the the Tories um, removed the compulsion in housing targets in in the latest. Um, series of housing legislation. Now, for a lot of pro-housing people, the targets were never sufficient to build the houses necessary, but also they were at the same time extremely unpopular in, in certain areas. What do you make of Labour trying to bring it back? Is, is targets a good policy? I don't know. I mean, uh, the details are so important with this. So exactly, you know, did the government remove targets? That's, this, is, this is a sort of fiddly point. In a certain sense, targets, the housing need assessment was always advisory and didn't actually generate. So what was I told? Woking, its local plan only delivers 26% of its assessed housing need, and yet it was approved as a valid local plan because Woking was able to give all its excuses about how nearly all of Woking is either already developed or greenbelt, and those are accepted as valid excuses. Um, so, so, and that that's before the recent round of MPPF changes. I mean, they, they yeah, I mean, the, the housing targets went... Um, if my memory serves correct, it's because generally suggested substantial increase in the housing targets. There were then these scare stories about what they meant, and somebody did an estimate of what that meant in each local area. But they didn't account for the exceptions and the fact that uh, you, you, those weren't actually going to be the housing targets in any local area because there were a lot of exemptions to even um, Generic's higher housing targets. And then after that whole reform agenda failed, the, the government gave up on housing targets altogether. Well, so it went from one extreme to the other very quickly. I, I'm not... We don't really know yet. So the, the 
definitive MPPF changes haven't been published. We don't really know exactly what the government's going to do to housing targets yet. Um, they're still going to have the housing the housing need assessment the standard method will still be there um, generating these figures on how much housing is needed in a given local authority now how authoritative we regard that system as being is another question but the system exists and will continue to exist and it will continue to have a role in whether local plans are valid, whether you know whether or not they meet those targets will continue to play a role in whether or not a local plan is um, counted as valid or not so uh, the, the story that the government has junked targets should be treated with caution. And the story that Labour is reintroducing targets depends on exactly what MPPF... I mean, yes, there are plenty of ways in which you could make the standard method target figures more binding on local authorities. But the exact wording of the MPPF that Labour eventually comes out with will determine what effect that has and how much impact it has in practice. And you know, this is all stuff we just don't know. And they can easily say, we, you know, we're going to make some changes around this. And they could even make some changes around this that don't actually have that much effect in practice. So, so you know, clearly, you and I both think we need to build more homes. And we probably should be building more homes in the places where homes are most needed rather than in parts of the country which don't really have a housing shortage. If we adhered more strictly to the housing targets that the standard method generates, we would move in that direction. Uh, I mean, not that far in that direction. The standard method isn't, you know, it, it, it doesn't give what you or I would think of as, as a true estimate of where homes are most needed and how many homes are needed in those places. But it, it would move in that direction. So it's welcome that Labour is talking about doing that. So I feel like I have to say, you know, this being the IEA, that Hayek may very well be turning in his grave uh, to think of, of people here talking about the need for targets. And I know, but it's all kind of smoke and mirrors, this, right? So like targets, yes, sure, targets are very Stalinist, but you kind of, you're by expecting... default, all development is banned in this country. And then local authorities can allow people to develop on certain bits of land. And the targets are when the national government tells local authorities you have to let people develop on a few more bits of land than you otherwise would do. So, so like paradoxically, the more, in a certain very real sense, the more targets we have, the less de the state is. Yeah. The state as a whole. The, the targets are liberalising. Yes, uh, the targets in, in, are targets in, for liberalisation. That in, is what. In, in, in otherwise, it's you know that there's no impetus to build and or relatively limited. There's no, there's, no, there's, no there's no permission to build. Yeah. Uh, and local authorities have limited incentive to give such, such permissions because of the way that the politics of local authorities work out. So, so you know, yes, it it sounds very unappealing to you know, it's not the language that the IEA would naturally naturally be operating in, but uh, but that's kind of an illusion that's generated yeah. by the way that our system works. So, so Labour's also promised, you know, and again, this is where the, there is pretty much no detail. We're going to have targets. We're also going to have local consent, um, which which. Seems like a, a contradiction in terms. Um, you've spent at least some time thinking about how you could potentially get local consent. Um, and you know, if, if you could fix the underlying issue in the housing system, of course, you wouldn't need targets. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Labor, that's good that Labour's talking about that. I mean, it's without developing the how to do it is the hard question of housing policy. Like, what is the politically durable way of building homes? You can't, you know, there's no politically durable way of building the homes the country needs without at least making progress on the local consent question. Um, so Labour, you know, now needs to come up with a precise solution um, to how to do that. 
and, and yes, this is a fact. That's something of great interest to me. If they wanted, you know, for green belt development, I mean, that's going to be particularly difficult, obviously. But if they did want it, I'd say probably uh, let parishes do green belt release in their neighbourhood plans, which they're not allowed to do at the moment. Um, they could, you know, you, those parishes with the deals they could strike with a developer for doing. You know, I mean, don't let them release do it in an AOMBs or in the. But if they want to do beautiful, gentle density development near to a railway station, and a parish wants to cut a deal with a developer, so this parish becomes the world's best funded parish, like people never pay council tax again, they get amazing local services, they get a you know, fantastic payoff from the developer. And what they have to do in return for that is let the developer build a load of beautiful walkable development by a railway station with a high-speed link into London. Why should we be stopping people from cutting that deal? Yeah, That's, uh, this is where the key is, which is finding these kind of win-win solutions. Yeah. The, com the community benefits, they get better infrastructure, housing, healthcare, choice about what goes in the area, but at the same time, um, and, and I think there's a, there is a lot of thinking about this, about ensuring councils get, I suppose, more of the uplift and the value that comes from granting permission. And it's far less quixotic than people imagine. And we know this, a British example is estate regeneration. So in London, we introduced this system of requiring uh, um, the, the local authority of housing association with the ballot of existing residents before they can regenerate an estate, meaning essentially demolish the whole estate and rebuild it at higher densities. And the way they... You know, win these ballots is they offer existing residents much better homes after the regeneration has finished, paid for by the higher density by creating a load of private sector apartments. This is an interesting story. Is it, is it Tel Aviv where, in order to well, this is good too. Yes. Re rebuilding, yeah. they've best of my understanding, if you're a kind of history, uh, an old building that isn't up to modern standards and, and earthquake, potentially be earthquake-proof yeah. building, you can basically demolish it, build or have automatic permission to build you know, five extra stories. And then by building those five extra stories, you get a brand new apartment building. It was actually a case um, pretty much across the road from where I used to live in Clapham Junction, where they uh, pretty much did the same thing, where they um, managed to persuade it, kind of six property owners to sell their property um, into a kind of a, a single development corporation and then demolished the building and, and rebuilt it as 12 modern, architecturally beautiful apartments. Yeah, they, they uptake these things. So Tel Aviv now delivers, they didn't even intend it to deliver housing. They just wanted it to you know, uh, retrofit buildings to higher earthquake standards. But they now deliver something like a fifth of new housing in Tel Aviv wow. through this policy. Estate regeneration ballots, they've won, I mean, certainly, I, I, I do have the exact figures, I can't recall them, but it's, it's nearly all, so certainly over 90% of regeneration ballots have been won by the local authorities and it's even quite a lot higher than that um, the uh, so, and this is this is much more traumatic than just having some development near you this is actually your home getting demolished <laughs> and you're getting rehoused and people still want it to happen because uh, who doesn't want to do that house, yeah. house yeah so, so one... uh, there's so much planning gain you know, we've now as uh, as our friend john Myers puts it we are sitting on value we've been suppressing development so long there's so much value there to be created, that if we share it around the various people who are affected by development, we can often create win-win coalitions in favour of building more. And that, you know, if Labour's thinking about that, then you know, more power to them, good, good, uh, it's the right area to be thinking of. I just want to get your thoughts on one final topic, which is the government has just announced uh, a package of new rental reforms. Um, these are focused on uh, ending no-fault evictions, um, or kind of restricting evictions, except in a kind of limited set of circumstances, um, giving tenants the right to have pets in their properties. Uh, on, on top of that, 
um, doing changes to enable um, all sorts of, I suppose, rental rights. Now, these are on the face of it quite popular. Um, I suppose the, the, the IA has been quite critical in recent days of this. I'm just wondering what, what your thoughts are. So I should caveat this by saying, I've, since I only just come back yesterday from filming in Azerbaijan, I haven't followed all the details. I can give you a, a, only a few like preliminary thoughts. But the you can see why it's popular. It sounds good. Like being able to keep a pet in your flat is nice. Why should the government not mandate nice things? <laughs> this is a, um, but we, we have a lot of historical experience of stuff, policies that are analogous to this, like this. The really obvious one being rent control used in many countries and different times and places. Um, and it's, you know, it's fairly predictable what the effects are. If you make it um, harder to um, rent out your property, then people will be less likely to rent out their properties and instead, basically, they'll sell them into owner occupation. Um, or potentially Airbnb in the modern case. Oh, well, yes, right, yes. Um, so I, will, I think it's... A policy like this, it's very hard to see how it could not be um, obviously bad landlords bad for private tenants because the um, stock of properties available to rent will decline, good for Airbnb um, uh, um, seekers, um, and curiously good for first-time buyers, probably slightly expand the stock of uh, houses available to buy because a load of landlords will be yeah. uh, evicting their tenants. It's, it's, it seems to me exactly the analogous um, economic impacts of rent control, which you have a lot of evidence on. So, you know, if you're a, an immigrant, if you're someone who's younger, if you're someone who doesn't have, you know, much capital, um, you're probably going to find it much harder to rent because you're not going to have much of a, a proof that you're going to be able to pay your rent. You're not going to have to be able to necessarily convince as many landlords that, that you are a good tenant. Now, previously, you had the security and the knowledge that as a, as a landlord, you could basically get rid of someone pretty easily if they were being problematic, no fault eviction, that principle being there. Now you lose that, that means you're just going to be less likely to, to want to be a landlord. And the government's already changed a number of the tax treatment and incentives for landlords. Now, people really do hate landlords. I understand why people hate landlords. And landlords are often absolutely rotten. You know, the, the amount of experiences you have with mould, with you know, claims when you move out of a property that there's a missing spoon and therefore you need to you know, add 10 quid to the amount owed and something hasn't been... Like, landlords are... Uh, you know, it's, a, it's a rotten business, but it seems to me it's just one of these classic issues where the only way to solve it is to have more landlords. So we as um, tenants and renters, and myself as a renter, has more choice. Yes, well, I see the government's... Um... Um, talking about in the white paper on this stuff, they're talking about enforcing the decent home standard on yes, private that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's an old, you know, who doesn't want decent homes? What a why? Why would we possibly not have a decent home standard? But like, it's, as 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 we would say, it's like one of these policies of banning the Tesco value option. Like everyone deserves the Tesco finest. <laughs> it's, it's awful. Anyone should have to We're going to ban Tesco. You can only shop at value. We're going to only shop at Waitrose from now on. That's right. Everyone will have Tesco finest, or if they can't afford Tesco finest, they'll have nothing. Uh, but we'll go away feeling good about ourselves because we banned this displeasing option, and we don't have to think about the people who now end up with nothing. And I'm afraid, you know, lots of these. When you try to to regulate good homes into existence, if you haven't actually permitted the good homes to be built in the first place, if you've still got a terrible housing shortage and there just aren't enough good rental properties on the market, 
then you might end up forcing up standards in some apartments, but you're also going to end up with uh, more acute shortages and more people, more households that are suppressed and uh, more people in dire need. And it, on the whole, it will hit the worst off people most, as you pointed out. Well, I think we've, we've kind of run out of time here. We've even gone over time. Thank you so much, Samuel Hughes, for that, I suppose, roller coaster of discussion yes. from uh, some kind of quite optimistic ideas and, and uh, concepts that we're learning from overseas through to... Uh, some, some potential glimmers of hope for reform to some uh, less positive news from, from the government this week. Um, if you are enjoying the IEA podcast, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast provider or you can also watch it on the IEA YouTube channel. Uh, you are also most invited to visit IEA.org.uk where you can learn more about the IEA and our work. Um, and also I would encourage you um, to, to follow Sam's work closely. He's got an excellent Twitter feed. Uh, as, as well as that um, video on works um, in progress that, that you can watch about Brooklyn and more coming soon.